Amen. Thank you again for joining us, church family. To all the guests who have joined us online, thank you for being here. Uh, I am thankful for our ability to be able to gather even virtually, uh, but I am also very excited about our ability and uh, uh, our time of worship that we will be planning for next Sunday evening. After three months, really, of not being able to gather, uh, I can't wait to see your faces and to worship together. So I, I pray that you plan to be there for that. Today, we launch into a new sermon series entitled, Turning the World Upside Down. The title is really a double entendre, meaning it has a double meaning. Uh, on the one hand, the first meaning is that uh, the reality is our world has been turned upside down over the last few months, hasn't it? This pandemic has upended every aspect of our lives, from our health to how we work and school and how we shop, everything. On top of that, uh, as if that wasn't enough, recent tragedies in our nation have continued to put the spotlight on the pain and the injustice of people of color as, they, as they've endured for a number of years. And so in the midst of uncertainty and fear and even anger, how do we live as children of light and hope and love? How do we live in a world that has been turned upside down? But there's a second meaning to this title, and it's really the, 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 the more biblical meaning, the deeper meaning to it. You see, this phrase, the world turned upside down, is actually taken from the Bible in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, when, when the, the early church was, uh, their commitment to the gospel was so strong, it had changed them so much that they were making such a difference in the community and the people and the, in, the, in the Roman Empire that it says in Acts 17, verse 6, that, that people were looking to the Christians and, and accusing them. It said, these men and women are turning the world upside down. Little did those people know how true that statement would be as the gospel would infiltrate not only the entire Roman Empire, but the entire world even until today. You see, the early church was known not just for their devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but for how the gospel changed them and changed how they lived. They were so generous, so sacrificial, so courageous, so hopeful that it literally changed everything around them. It changed the people around them. And so in this series, what we want to do is we want to help navigate, we want to explore how do we navigate living in a world that's already been turned upside down, and how do we, through our commitment to the gospel, turn the world upside down ourselves as a counterculture to whatever else is going on? Today's message is called, is entitled, Looking to the Lord as Our Avenger and Champion. Looking to the Lord as Our Avenger and Champion from Psalm 94, which Susan just read. I use the word avenger... Because Psalm 94 opens up, notice, God of vengeance, oh God of vengeance. And most of us immediately cringe at the word vengeance because we tend to think of vengeance as being cruel or mean, having kind of a, a vindictive spirit. But God's vengeance is none of those things. It is just. It is fair. It is repaying evil. What they do, they're due. But when I use the word avenger, instead of having negative feelings like the word vengeance, avenger actually has positive feelings, doesn't it? It evokes positive thoughts. Why? 
partly because of the comic book series and later the movies, Avengers. You see, when we think of Avengers nowadays, we think of those who have superhuman power, who can fight evil and destroy evildoers, those who, are, uh, those who are willing to risk their lives for the most vulnerable and those who are in danger. We think of those who are courageous and self-sacrificing, don't we? That's the image I want you to have of God and what the psalmist is crying out to for, the image of, of the God of vengeance and, and justice, the God who will come down and, 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 and make right what is wrong and do it in the just, most just and honorable and pure way possible. Here's the question I want us to, to wrestle with and seek to answer through this text. In a world full of evil and injustice, both in our personal lives and as a society, how should we respond? How do we respond to evil and injustice? And Psalm 94 gives us a framework for this. Lesson number one that we see in this text. Lament injustice to our just God. Lament injustice to our just God. Verses one and two. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. Notice he's crying out to the Lord. Notice Lord in all caps right away. That's the covenant name of God. Yahweh, I'm crying out to you. And then he says, O God of vengeance. There's the word. Vengeance means punishment. It means repaying evil and evildoers what is just and fair. And that might make us uncomfortable, but we must embrace that vengeance is a part of God's character, that God punishes evil. Some people think that God is only a God of love. He loves everything. He loves everyone. It's his creation. He is a God of love, yes, but he's not only a God of love. He's a God of vengeance and justice. And while that might make us uncomfortable, it should also give us hope. Why? Because it means evil will not continue indefinitely. God will judge all evil. He will punish evildoers. This is a part of God's character. This is who he is. God is just. And this should comfort us. Listen, when we talk about God's qualities or his attributes, theologians actually talk about his qualities or his attributes as his perfections because any attribute of God, when it's God's attribute, it's, it's the perfection of that attribute. So God is love, yes, but he is the perfection of love. God is just. He is the perfection of justice. God is vengeful. He is the perfection, the purity of what vengeance is. God will judge all evil. Now listen, the psalmist is crying for God to bring vengeance, not for his own. You, re you see that? God, you pour out your vengeance. We learned in the Joseph story, in Genesis 50, at the end of Joseph's life, he says to his brothers, who are afraid he's going to do something mean to them for what they've done to him, he says, am I in the place of God? No. Vengeance is not ours, church but the Lord's. Romans 12, vengeance belongs to me, saith the Lord. Christian, as much as we want justice here on earth and should seek justice, we must guard our hearts against seeking vengeance, our own vengeance for the evil in the world. You know why? Because God is the only one who can repay evil without being evil. 
God is the only one who can perfectly judge, who can perfectly repay evil what they do, what, what, what they deserve, without himself becoming evil. That as soon as you and I seek to pay vengeance, as soon as we seek how do we, 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 how do we pay them back, all of a sudden our hearts become evil. But not God. And that's why the psalmist is crying out to God. He knows God alone. God, you shine forth. God, would you rise up and do what only you can do in the most just and fair way? Punish evil, is what he's saying. Why? Verse 2, because you are the judge of all the earth. The psalmist is pleading for God to be true to his character. Notice verse 3. This is a lament psalm. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked prosper or exalt and rejoice in their wickedness? How long will they continue in their unjust ways? Do you feel that way this morning? Do you feel the weight of injustice in our world or maybe even in your personal life? Maybe it's the injustice in your workplace and you, and you know they, they are doing things that are wrong and you feel powerless to help. Or maybe someone has accused you of doing something wrong and you're innocent and you feel like, how am I getting accused? What, how, how do I get justice? And you're crying out to God. Or maybe you look at the society around you and you see the unjust killing of a black man like George Floyd or Rayshard Brooks and, and it should break your heart. It should. And by the way, if you hear something like that and your first response is to point out there are other people who are getting killed too, then listen to me. You have automatically failed to, in the fundamental commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. You have failed to mourn with those who mourn. Yes, there are other injustices, but our, they're, they're our, our brothers and sisters are grieving right now and we are to grieve with them. We are to cry out to God with them. As Christians, we must rediscover the biblical practice of lament. And I know I've talked about lament before, and I'm going to keep talking about it. I'm going to keep teaching us and leading us as a church into lament. Because listen to me, you cannot respond to evil in a healthy way without lament. Do you hear me? You cannot respond to evil in our world, in your life, personal life, wherever you see it. You cannot respond to evil without lament. Even as we seek to respond to injustice in tangible ways, we should also seek to lament injustice. In other words, we need our hands and our hearts involved in the healing process. John Perkins wrote an excellent book called One Blood. I encourage you to read it, every, and everyone to read it. And he talks, he has a whole chapter on lament, and he literally says, listen, we're running a marathon for justice. Seeking justice is like running a marathon, and in any long run, people hit a wall. And he says, the only way you get, a, get over that wall is to train, is to know there's a long view of mind, and you have to get over that wall or you won't be able to finish the race. He says, lament helps us get over that wall. In his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Pastor Mark Rogup says this, Lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. In other words, lament gives voice to the strong emotions that believers feel because of evil and suffering. Lament isn't just, it's not just voicing our broken hearts to God. Lament is the path that leads us from heartbreak to hope. 
from heartbreak to hope. That's what lament does. And a full third of the Psalms, one third of all the Psalms in the Bible are lament Psalms. And that should make sense to us because a significant portion of our lives are spent wrestling with pain and suffering and injustice. Listen, if we're going to respond to injustice in healthy ways in our world, then we have to respond with, we have to start with the practice of lament. Here's what I know. Those who are on social media bashing others who disagree with them have not wrestled their emotions out with God in lament. Those who are responding to violence with violence of their own have surely not embraced the biblical practice of lament. Listen, you can use social media as your public therapy session if you'd like, but it would be so much better for you and for everyone if you would take your struggles to the great therapist himself first. If you would take your your pain and your sorrows to the one who's not just a counselor or a therapist, but the one who is your heavenly father who wraps his arms around you as you share your grief and you share your frustration and who says to you, I hear you, my child. It breaks my heart too. Should Christians peacefully protest? Yes. Should we cry out for policy change? Yes. Should we denounce racism and bigotry and prejudice in any form? Yes. But these things cannot be done from a healthy heart if you start there. We must start with lament. We must start with crying out to our God because of the heinous acts that we see and witness to, just like the psalmist does. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, They're so wicked... There's so much wickedness around me, they rejoice in it. They're not even ashamed of it. A lot of evil is done in the dark, but he says these evildoers are doing it in the public. They're not ashamed at all. And oh, they crush your people. They afflict your heritage. They kill the widow, the sojourner, and they murder the fatherless. What a vivid image. They crush your people. In other words, God's people were being oppressed. We don't know what the occasion is for the psalm, but it was so bad that, that God's people as a whole were being oppressed. How so? They were oppressing the most vulnerable in their society. Notice the widow, the sojourner, but sojourner means immigrant, and the orphan. This is not only wrong, it's an affront to God's character. Because God is just, he commands his people to reflect his character and his justice and these people, whoever was doing this, these wicked do, evildoers, were, were, they failed to live up to God's command, to justice. Notice verse 15, it talks about justice. And, and verse 1 and 2, the old judge of the earth. The word justice in the Old Testament is the word mishpat. It occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament alone. And its most basic meaning is this, to treat people equitably. So Leviticus 24, verse 22 says, and it warns Israel. God warns them in Leviticus 24, verse 22. He says, you shall have the same rule, the same mishpat for the sojourner and for the native. 
What is he saying? Mishpat means acquitting or punishing each person according to the merits of the case, regardless of cultural background or social status. In other words, anyone who does the same wrong is given the same penalty. But the word means more than this. Mishpat also means giving people their rights or what they are due. Proverbs 31 verse 9, Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the poor, the rights of the poor and the needy. Mishpat includes the idea of giving people what they are due, whether it's punishment or, on the flip side, protection and care. In the Old Testament, over and over again, we see the word justice, mishpat, connected to several groups of people, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Like here in verse 6. Why? Why those people? Don't we need justice for everyone? Yes! But here's why the Bible highlights those groups of people. Because according to the Bible, the mishpat or the justness of a society is evaluated by how it treats the most vulnerable among them. And that's why the Bible says over and over why God himself speaks through his word when he says, I am the defender of these groups of people. I am the defender of the vulnerable. I am the defender of those who have no voice, who have the least economic and social status. And we're called to join God in this over and over. Isaiah 117, learn, notice it's a process, learn to do good, seek mishpat, justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. There are those groups again. Doing justice doesn't just mean treating people equally. It means giving greater care and energy to those who are not being treated equally. Verse 7, the worst part about these evildoers, they say God doesn't even care because God doesn't even see it. They're taunting God with their evil. They're blatantly rejecting his command to protect the weakest and most vulnerable and that to add insult to injury, they falsely assume because God has not intervened, that must mean he doesn't care. They fall into the same trap that many of us do, that God's silence equals God's absence. We fall into that mindset all the time, don't we? The longer evil persists, the harder it is to remember that God will punish evil. And that's why the psalmist is taking his lament to God. The psalmist teaches us that lamenting injustice to our just God is not only good because we're going to the God who can do something, but it's good because in the process of lament, God changes us to be the kind of people who can humbly represent him in the world, who can do so from a pure heart, from, a, from an honest heart, from a heart rooted in his word. Lament injustice to our just God. Lesson number two. Trust that God sees injustice and will act. The evildoers are taunting God, saying he does not see. And now in verses 8 through 11, the psalmist speaks directly to them. Look at verses 8 through 11. He, he says, in essence, you think you pull the fast one on God? You think the one who created the ear on your head does not hear 
You think the one who created the very synapses that are firing your eyeballs right now that give you sight, you think the one who did that does not himself have the ability to see? You think the one who has the authority and power to discipline not just individuals but entire nations, you think he will not rebuke you evildoers for your injustice? He says, you are duller than we realized. You are more foolish than we imagined. This is an important truth, and it goes back to the Joseph story in Genesis that I'm going to keep reiterating it because it's so, it's so important in, in this day and age. Please understand, God's silence is not God's absence. When God is silent, church, he is still working. He is still moving. He still sees. He is behind the scenes, orchestrating events, orchestrating, working in your relationships, guiding nations. He's doing big things like guiding nations, and he's doing little things like, like shepherding your very soul. And listen to me, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't sleep. He is never absent. Psalm 121, the Lord never slumbers nor sleeps. He is always working, always with you, always understanding, and he sees and he hears everything that's going on. Believe that, Christian. We must believe that, church. And that's actually the theme that he turns to now in 12 through 15. In those verses, the psalmist now turns from his lament and he starts to warn the wicked. Instead, or sorry, instead of warning the wicked, now he turns to encourage God's people. Verses 12, he reassures them that even us who endure oppression or, or difficulty or trials, he's saying God is still working for our good. God is still committed to bless us. Verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law or your word. Listen, our trials should drive us to God's word. I know that we have not been able to meet on Sundays, for several months. But can I just ask you, do you still have a Bible? It's, a, it's an honest question. Do you still have your Bible? Or did all of you leave your Bibles here at church? I, I don't see them. So that means you have them at home, okay? You have God's Word. We haven't been able to meet, true. And that, that has affected us. But we have God's Word still. And I'm encouraging you. I am pleading with you as your pastor. Pick up God's Word and read it. There are a thousand voices right now seeking to disciple you or to convince you how you ought to think and feel and act. Don't be fooled. You are being shaped right now. And I'm asking you, be shaped by this primarily. Be shaped by this. Read other good books. Go on social media, maybe. But unless, it, unless you're doing it from a framework of this, then close the window. Exit out. It's not healthy for you. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said that. The Son of God said that he needed God's word more than life, anything else in life. You think you and I are any different? Do you see what's happening? 
God's word is teaching the psalmist about God's character. It's reminding him that he is just, that he is good, that he is faithful. God's word is assuring him that God will give rest from the days of trouble, like he says in verse 13. He reminds him that God will not forsake his people. God will not abandon you. Through lament, the broken-hearted psalmist moves to hope. God's silence, he is reminded, does not mean God's absence. He cannot forsake the very people with whom he has covenanted with. Not only that, he is confident that justice, verse 15, justice will return to the righteous and all the upright will follow it. You see that? Follow what? Will follow justice. He is confident that not only will God's people get justice from God, but they will do justice here and now. Do you believe that God sees the injustice in your life and in our world? And are you trusting he will work in your life personally and in our world to bring justice? Maybe sometimes here and now we we work to that, we pray to that, but ultimately in the end of time. Do you believe that? Third lesson. Behold our champion who both judges and rescues. In verse 16, the psalmist cries out again. He's looking for someone who will be his defender. Notice, who will rise up for me? Who's going to stand against evil? It's sort of like the people of Israel standing on one mountain and Goliath and and, and the people of the Philistines standing on the other side. And the Israelites are like, who's going to stand against? Goliath is literally taunting God's people, taunting their God. And the Israelites are like, who's going to stand for us? Who will rise up? They're looking for a champion. The psalmist is looking for a champion who will stand for justice and righteousness in the midst of the wicked. And he knows It's only the Lord who can do that. But what about us now? Isn't the church right now the visible representation of God's kingdom? Isn't the church right now the very body of Christ? Don't we represent God and reflect God? There are many individuals and groups who are oppressed and marginalized in our society, whether it's the black community right now and and long-term in history in our nation, or the disabled, or the elderly, or the poor, or the unborn. And they're all asking, in a sense, who will rise for us against the wicked? Who will stand for us against evildoers? And of course the answer is God Almighty, the God of vengeance will, the righteous judge, But just as sure as that answer is, shouldn't we also say, the church will, the church of Jesus Christ will. We will stand with our righteous God on your behalf. Whether it be in our homes, we will stand against injustice, or our neighborhoods, or in our society at large. That's what Micah 6.8 says. What does God require of you? What does God require of us? But to do justice, love kindness, or chesed, faithfulness, mercy, loving kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Notice verse 17. He's saying, I was so weak I couldn't go on. I was so depressed I felt like I couldn't keep on living. Ever been there? 
I've talked to some of you. I've spent numerous hours these past couple weeks meeting with church members, listening, just listening, asking questions, trying to understand their experiences, trying to empathize and sympathize with, with what they're, where they've been and their stories that are different than mine. Some of them have shared things like, man, I almost gave up. My foot almost slipped. But God's steadfast love held me up. God's steadfast love, even in the darkest of valleys, he's the one who carried me through. Verse 19, the cares of my heart are many, but God's consolations, they cheer my soul. How so? How can now, he, how can he say something is cheering his soul? What's cheering his soul? What's giving him hope? What's encouraging him? It's namely this, that God will not get history wrong. He will not get your history or my history or the world's history wrong. He's not going to make a mistake. There's a large percentage of, of, of men and women who are in death row right now who are innocent and people have taken those cases and had them overturned and that is heartbreaking and is terrible. But listen, in our, day, in our lives, in, in the grand scheme of things, God will never get a case wrong, ever. And that gives him encouragement. It comforts him in his affliction. Abraham asked of God in Genesis 18, when he was about to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, he said to God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham knew the answer, and so does the psalmist. Yes, he will. He must, to be true to his nature, and that cheers his soul. Even in his brokenheartedness, he has hope. It literally, this hope carries him through and it can be sa the same for you and I, Christian. It can, God's, God's justice and his love for his people can carry us through. Now, verse 20 is one that you should underline, especially as Christians seeking the truth, not just about injustice, but I'm going to say a buzzword and some of you automatically might put up walls, not just about injustice, but systemic injustice. Some people are really quick to say there's no such thing as systemic injustice. Just individuals who do, who do evil deeds. But Pastor Brady made a brilliant case two weeks ago about how any system in our world will be inherently flawed precisely because any system is run by sinful people. Not only that, the kingdom of the world, Jesus tells us, the kingdom of the world is a kingdom of darkness and it stands in opposition to God and his kingdom. And so verse 20, he's talking about these evildoers. They band together. Sorry, can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? Do you see what he's saying? There is such a thing as systemic injustice. I don't advocate for critical race theory. I'm not saying that, but I am saying it is reality that we live in, and historically, it's accurate that we know that laws are created that can perpetuate injustice towards certain groups of people. And it's a dreadful evil. Laws, because laws are inherently meant to bring justice and order, and now it's an evil because those same laws are used to perpetuate injustice. And his point, the psalmist's point is this, any system or institution that does this can in no way be associated with the God of justice and righteousness. He says the oppressors, 
intentionally go after the righteous. They go as far, he go, they go as far to condemn the innocent to death. And we've seen that again historically. Whether it's with the poor or the unborn or black Americans, we have to admit uh, that this is wrong and we must courageously work to undo this injustice, these injustices. Verse 22 and verse 23, the conclusion. But the Lord has become my stronghold, my rock, the rock of my refuge. He's saying the Lord is my strength to press on. He knows that experiencing injustice is wearisome. It's exhausting and we feel like giving up. But he's saying despite being against so much evil, as God's people, we have a source of security and confidence that nothing in the world can destroy. We can stand up for justice because the God of of justice himself is our stronghold, is our refuge. He's our support and our protection. And verse 23, his final analysis sounds kind of harsh, right? I know you're going to bring back the iniquities and you're going to wipe out the wickedness of the wicked. I know you're going to wipe them out. That's how he ends. The psalmist is confident that God alone will bring justice in the right time and in the right way. We don't know how, we don't know when, but we can be just as confident that God will do it. But notice I said the lesson is, behold our champion who both judges and rescues The question that that begs is, how is it possible if we're all guilty of injustice? How can God rescue anyone? You see, every one of us, including the psalmist, including you and I, are guilty of of some kind of injustice in our lives. We we all have prejudices. We all sometimes feel superior to others. We all sometimes, even in our hearts, whether it comes out or not, we treat people, we think of people, we feel about people differently based on some external factor. Or to put it another way, none of us is righteous. You see, we need to be careful for how desperately we want God's justice because that means justice for each one of us. How can anyone be rescued if everyone is guilty of sin against a holy and just God? You see, the psalmist isn't the only one who needs a champion. The Israelites weren't the only ones who needed a champion to rescue them from the just punishment of their sin. We need a champion. We need, we need someone who's better than David, who will stand against the enemy, who will stand against the greatest foe that we've ever experienced, who will stand against Satan and sin and death and defeat them. Is there anyone, we can say in verse 16, is there anyone who will rise not against the wicked, but for the wicked? You see that? Is there anyone who will stand not just against evildoers, but for evildoers like us? And this is what brings our hearts the greatest consolation and comfort because the good news is that we have Jesus as our champion. This psalm, as all the psalms and all scripture, are ultimately about Jesus and point to Jesus. You see, in order for Jesus to be our champion, which he is, in order for him to rescue us, which he has, he had to become one of the oppressed and marginalized. He was born in a feeding trough the epitome of poverty. He rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. The soldiers cast lot for his robe, which means he died naked and penniless. He didn't have a home to call his own. 
Don't you see? Some of you I know are listening are struggling with how to believe in a God because of all the injustice in our world. How can you believe in a God when there's so much evil, so much injustice, and yet Jesus, who is the perfect Son of God, knows what it's like to be a victim of injustice. He faced a corrupt, a corrupt system and was killed for standing up against the powerful. Verse 21, they banded together against the life of the righteous. Who is the only righteous one? Jesus. They condemned the innocent to death. The judge of all the earth that the psalmist was crying out to came down and was judged by an unjust court. The religious leaders framed injustice by statute. And murdered the Son of God. They condemned an innocent man to die. And Jesus was lynched. He was humiliated. He hung on a cross, the most shameful and cursed symbol in the history at the time and even now. Listen to me Christianity does not ask you to believe in a God that is detached from injustice. Jesus experienced all the evil, all the injustice, all the sin, and all the suffering in the world to the greatest degree imaginable. Why? Why would he do it? For you and for me. He had to die to satisfy justice. If you look to the cross, don't just see, wow, look how much God loves me, which he does. Look how much God is committed to his own justice. The wages of sin, the punishment for sin is death, Romans 3 says. Which means Jesus had to take our punishment. He had to die in our place. That's justice. But he didn't just have to to die. He willingly died. He did go out of love. The reason that he went to the cross was justice. The reason that that kept him on the cross was because he was thinking about you. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He he was thinking about you, about everyone who who had endured what what a broken world we live in because of our own sin. And as he was dying, he faced the worst evil possible and the worst suffering possible as the Father turned his face away, as Jesus alone became the sacrificial lamb, the one who takes away our sin, the one who dies in our place, the one who faced the ultimate punishment and condemnation for what our sins deserve. And in so doing, we read in the New Testament that it was to show the death of Jesus shows the righteousness of God that in the present time he might be both the just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. In other words, Christian, behold your champion. Behold your champion. Jesus did what no other person could do. And because he did, he now promises you that he will never forsake you. He now promises you to be a rock and your refuge. He now promises you freedom and hope and joy and grace and everlasting life. And he promises, Revelation 21, that one day, because he rose from the dead, He will come back, raise us up to new life. And when we will stand before him in his kingdom, when we will stand made new before him, it says, even as Psalm 94 is correct, he will wipe away all wickedness, even at the same time, he will wipe away every tear from your eye. Because all death will be no more, all sin and suffering will be no more, and we will live with our God and reign with our 
Father forever and ever. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to invite you. I want to ask you, what is preventing you from right now turning from your sin, turning to the judge of all the earth, and crying out for mercy and trusting in Jesus as your, as your Savior? Accept his gift by faith, not by works, not by saying, I'm going to commit to coming to church or reading the Bible. Great, those are good things. Turn your life to Christ right now by trusting in his gift through his son, Jesus. Knowing that your salvation is rooted in both justice and love. He judges and he rescues. And Christian, the more you behold your champion, the avenger, the champion, the more you behold him, the more it will create in you and I and in our church the courage to keep walking by faith. Even running the race that is hard. It will encourage us. Behold him again. Look to Jesus again. It will fill your heart. It will help you stand against injustice. It will help you trust that at the end of time, God will right every wrong and restore all that was lost and make all things new. Would you pray with me? Father, O Lord, God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, rise up and be our champion, rise up and be the judge of all the earth that you are. But God, we know that even as we cry for justice, internally there is this sense that we, we deserve justice too. And so we acknowledge freely this morning that apart from your justice and your love, together, coming together, as theologians have said, that your, your justice and your love kissed on the cross, it was made perfectly clear that you are both just and the justifier of those who turn from their sin humbly and trust in the finished work of Christ. We thank you for this is the good news that we do have a champion that injustice will be punished. Your, yours is vengeance, Lord. May we walk humbly today, doing justice, loving mercy, learning how to do good. And as a church, may we be unified around the gospel so that as we learn from each other in this difficult and dark journey, we will not lose hope. Lord, that together we would not lose hope, but run the race looking unto you, knowing that together we are stronger than we are apart. Oh, Jesus, be our redeemer and keep redeeming us, we pray in your great name. Amen.